Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're in Ephesians chapter 5 today as we continue in our sermon series that we have entitled Christ-Centered Community, Living Out the Gospel in Our Relationships. Here at Redeemer Church, we feel very strongly that our belief in the good news of the gospel should make a difference in all of our relationships. But in order for the gospel to create Christ-centered community, in order for the gospel to make a difference in our relationships, we need to know what our job is. We need to know the role that God gives us to play in our relationships with one another. And we also need to be equipped with the right tools for the job, which are the tools that God uses to create his family. It's the the tools that God uses to create Christ-centered community to begin with. And we've set the biblical foundation the first three weeks of this sermon series where we've seen that our job is to depend on God and to love and serve others by pointing them to depend on God. And we've seen that the right tools that we are to use are the same tools that God uses, love and kindness and grace, and that we don't want to use the wrong tools of shame, fear, blame, those things that came into the world as a result of the fall. If that all seems really quickly to, quick to you, you'd say, whoa, where's the foundation for that? We've set that foundation biblically, the first three sermons of this series, so go back and listen to those sermons. Um, but uh, I do want to continue to review just a little bit, because as we've done this, and as we've reflected, and as I've had conversations with you, we've been saying things to one another like this. Waiting on God to change people is hard. And we've said that because God changes people in a process. And he changes people in a process that we tend to think is too slow. It's not fast enough. We would change people faster. And in our zeal to have Christ-centered communities, instead of waiting on God and depending on God to change people... We sometimes are tempted to do the wrong job and to use the wrong tools because those things can get quick outward results in the short term. And so we have a new graphic to illustrate that today. I want to look at that with you. Um, That we said we want to be very careful that we don't do the wrong job. A lot of times we try to fix people. We try to change people's hearts inwardly and their behavior outwardly. And we said, that's God's job. We've got to depend on God to do that. We don't want to do the wrong job. And that many times we use the wrong tools. We use shame or fear or blame because those things can get some short-term results. But we looked at the effects of using those last week and how they're not good long-term for our relationships. And they don't really produce long-term change in people. So we want to move away from that. And sometimes what we do is we will get focused on the right job. And our job is to depend on God and to point other people to depend on God. That's the way that we love and serve them well is say, hey, you need to depend on God. You need to look to him. He's the only one that can change you. And so a lot of times we do the right job, but sometimes even in our doing the right job, we'll use the wrong tools of shame, fear, and blame. 
I was talking to somebody recently who was involved in a ministry. And it was a ministry that had the right job in mind. They really wanted to encourage their folks to depend on God and point other people to depend on God. And they knew that in order to do that, people need to spend time in the Word, and they need to spend time in prayer, and they need to spend time memorizing Scripture. And so they had the right job in mind. They had the the right thing. They were really encouraging their folks to depend on God and to point other people to depend on God. But in order to do the right job, they started using the wrong tools. And this person was telling me about how this particular ministry, they would gather the leaders together once a week, very early in the morning, and that you had to go around the table and everybody had to tell how many quiet times you had this week and uh, how, how long you prayed and, and how often you did that, how consistently you had been at that. Now listen, I'm not opposed to accountability and I'm not here saying accountability is wrong. But the way it was reported to me, this person said, I felt like in the ministry it really became a tool of shame, that we would show up and we would keep a record of it and write it down every week. And over time, that over and over again just became this walk of shame that you had to walk in if you fell short or if you didn't do as much as everybody else did. And if you remember, you can go back to the week two illustration at the end, the brush your teeth illustration, and we saw that you can correct, that you can confront, that you can even give consequences and still use the right tools of love and grace and kindness. So we want to be careful because we can be doing the right job and using the wrong tools, but I've also seen folks use the right tools but have the wrong job in mind. I was working with a certain ministry and I was talking to some of their leaders and I was introducing these concepts and teaching these things to them. And they said, oh yeah, we tried this love and grace and kindness thing. We tried that But it didn't work, so we've moved to other tools that we're using. Like, okay, what do you mean it didn't work? Like, what what do you mean by that, I asked them. And they said, well, it wasn't fixing people when we used these tools. It wasn't changing people. We weren't seeing behavior change, so we decided to do something else. I was like, okay, hold on, pump the brakes, right? You were using the right tools of love, kindness, and grace, but you had the wrong job in mind. It's not your job to fix people. It's not your job to change people inwardly so that their behavior outwardly. That's God's job. You have to depend on him to do that. So we want to get to this place that we are focused on the right job to depend on God and to point others to depend on God, and we're using the right tools, kindness, love, grace, in order to do so. But that is so hard. And we looked last week about even at our best, we seem to be inconsistent in doing this. And that when we are inconsistent and sometimes use love, kindness, and grace, but at other times use shame, fear, and blame, that we really can send a message that is the opposite of the gospel. That you have to perform in order to get love, kindness, and grace or acceptance. And so it's really hard to do the right job and use the right tools, and to do so consistently. That is such a hard thing to do. So that brings us to Ephesians 5 that we look at today. And we're asking the question, how are we able to do the right job and to use the right tools consistently? How can we do that? Where do you get the power to do that? 
And there is a God-given power source that enables us, that strengthens us to do that. And we see it here in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. To put that verse into some context, in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul has written about how God um, has been hard at work and what God has done to establish his church and what he has done to create a Christ-centered community. And then in Ephesians 4 and 5, Paul has been writing about how we are to live as the people of God. So he is describing what Christ-centered community looks like and what it looks like to live out the gospel in our relationships. So this is a rich passage of scripture for us. And so I want to read Ephesians 5. I'm going to read verses 15 to 21 now, and, um, and we will look at that and spend some time here in God's word. So hear now God's word from Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 18. Let's start in verse 15. How about that? 5, 15 to 21. Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then if we were to continue to read for the next 15 verses, Paul describes what Christ-centered communities look like and specifically what it looks like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ that verse 21 refers to right there. And I don't know if you're anything like me, I long to read ahead. And I just want to look at those things and say, okay, just tell me what it is that I'm supposed to do and I will do it. And you've probably heard more preaching and teaching on Ephesians 5, 22 and what follows. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. 6, 1, children, obey your parents and the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment. You've probably heard more preaching and teaching on those things, because as 21st century Americans, we love to get to the practicality of just tell me what to do. But I want to stress this today. Before we look at any of those things, before you go there, First, before Paul tells us what this looks like and describes it, first Paul tells us where we get the power to have Christ-centered community. And he says we must first be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, listen, if you try to do this in your flesh, if you try to do this on your own, if you try to go your own way, not dependent on God, you will fail. And so to do these things that we've been talking about, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. So let me stop and pray for us and ask for the Spirit's assistance, and then we'll dig in and continue to look at Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 18. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we do need you to come and to help us now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, but we know unless the Spirit comes and gives us understanding, we can't understand it. Holy Spirit, unless you come and convict us of sin, as James prayed, we can't even see the things that we do wrong. So, Father, we confess now that we're totally dependent on you. And so we ask that you would send that one that Jesus promised to be with us, that you would send the Spirit 
to show us our sin, to convict us, to enable us and empower us to walk in your ways, that you would give us your spirit that we might have Christ-centered communities and that we might be able to live out the gospel in all of our relationships. And I pray that you would show us how to do that even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So where do we find the power to consistently do the right job and use the right tools? And Ephesians 5 and verse 18 tells us, Paul commands, be filled with the Spirit. And so he's very clear that in order to have Christ-centered communities, in order to do the things we're called to do, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, after Paul says that in verse 18, he says, don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. Then in verses 19, 20, and 21, he uses four participles to describe what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. These are just descriptions. They're not commands. And if you're like, oh my gosh, participles, don't get worried about that. Participles are just verbs that are used as adjectives. So each one of these participles begins with I-N-G. And let's just walk through and look at them. So if we're Spirit-filled, what does that look like? What does that result in? And the first thing Paul says in verse 19 is that if we're filled with the Spirit, then verse 19, we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's what it looks like. And people who are filled with the Spirit are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, does that mean that we only talk to each other using song lyrics? No, I don't think that's exactly what he's saying. But think about what all those things do say. What do psalms and hymns and spiritual songs say? We looked at Psalm 42 recently together when we talked about the gospel when I'm down. And we learned there that sometimes we address the scripture in scripture, we address one another. And we were saying, why are you downcast, my soul? Put your hope in God. That that's one of the things we would say if we addressed each other in psalms. And we would say, put your hope in God. Put your trust in him. Or back in November, we had a sermon on Psalm 95 when we were talking about the call to worship. And remember the part of that psalm that says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The writer of Hebrews quotes that Psalm 95. And that's one of the things we would say if we were quoting, if we're speaking, that we would say, Hey, don't harden your heart to God. Or Psalm 96 says things like, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Ascribe to the Lord the honor that is due to him. So addressing one another in Psalms and the Spirit would would be to encourage each other in that way. To remind one another of the attributes of God. His character, what he is like, his faithfulness. And to call one another because of who he is to depend on him, to put our trust in him, to hope in him. Now, I hope as you hear that description, you're beginning to think, wow, that sounds a lot like depending on God and calling other people to depend on God. And I think you're right. That is a big part of what addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs would look like. Paul goes on. There's another participle, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Spirit-filled people worship God. But I don't think Paul's just talking about for an hour on Sunday mornings here. He's saying that people who are filled with the Spirit have this song in their heart toward God, but that they're in his presence all the time. 
that they worship in all the areas of their life, that everything they do is done as unto the Lord. So spirit-filled people worship God in all areas of life, and they have a song of love and of joy in their hearts to God because if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, then we all are always in the presence of God, and he is always with us, and there's never a time that we're separated from him. Paul goes on in verse 20. There's another participle, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So people who are filled with the Spirit see God as the source of all things. I think of James 1 and verse 17, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And so those filled with the Spirit see God as the source of all things. And so they are thankful to God and are quick to give Him thanks. It also leads to a dependence on God and pointing others to depend on God when we're thankful and we see him as the source of all the good gifts that we have. That would also mean, if you think about it, that a grumbling, complaining spirit is not consistent with the Holy Spirit. Those filled with the Holy Spirit are not filled with grumbling and complaining because they are filled with thanksgiving. That's what how Paul describes people who are filled with the Spirit. They address one another's psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They sing to the Lord. They give thanks. And look at verse 21. This is important for us as we think about living in Christ-centered communities. He says, another attribute of people filled with the Spirit is that they submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. They submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, that is a pretty good description of Christ-centered community, all these participles working together, describing those who are filled with the Spirit. But especially this last one, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So let's talk about that and unpack that for a moment. This word submit, not a fun word in our culture, a word kind of looked down upon, But it's a word that means basically that you're willing to give up your rights and even give up your needs for the good of another person. That's what submission is, or submitting to someone or something else. It's being willing to give up what I want or to give up my rights or my needs for the good of another person. That's the person that I am submitting to. This word was used in Paul's day mostly as a military term. And it was used for submission to a military officer. And that makes sense, right? If you are in the military and you are submitting to your commanding officer, you don't get up in the morning at what time you want to get up. You get up at the time everybody else does. And you don't eat whenever you want to and eat whatever you want to. You eat when everybody else eats and you eat what it is they have to eat. And you don't march when you want to march or how far you want to march. You march the way everybody else is. The point is, when you submit, you don't get everything that you want. You are giving up your rights, you're giving up your needs, you're giving up your desires for the good of another. So why was that word used in a military context? And the reason why was in order to move together as one unit, in order to be one group, in order to have unity, in order to act as one then individuals must give up their individual choices. 
And the same is true of Christ-centered community. You are part of something bigger than yourself. And in Christ-centered community, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ means that we give up our rights, our needs, and our desires for the common good. That we put the good of the whole over our own desires. Now surely people who follow the Lord Jesus, who gave us an example of this, would be people who do that, right? That as we see Jesus gave up the perfection of heaven where he's worshipped and adored to come here to be mistreated and misunderstood. When he came here and he said, I come not to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many then certainly those who are his disciples, those who are his followers, would also be here not to be served, but to serve and to give our lives for other people. And that's essential for Christ-centered community. But listen to what Paul is saying, because I know as soon as I say that, we all begin to think, okay, I've got to grip my teeth, and I'm going to submit to these other people even though they don't deserve it. Well, notice he says, submit to one another, not because they deserve it, but he says submit to one another out of what? Reverence for Christ. These other people in here don't deserve it. It's Jesus who gave his life for me. 2 Corinthians 5 and verses 13 and 14 we've been looking at, right? That I believe he died for me. And so I no longer live for myself, but I live for him who is willing to give himself for me. And so I give myself for him. So we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And before you start thinking, okay, I've just got to look at Jesus and try really hard to submit to these other people who don't deserve it because I know I'm really doing it for him. Remember what Paul is saying. He says that people filled by the Holy Spirit submit to one another. And then for the next 15 verses, he talks about what that looks like. He gives a description of that. And we long to get to the description. You probably want me to get there today, and I'm not going to. We call one another. Wives, submit your husbands. Love your wives. Children, obey your parents. We love to run to those imperatives, but I want you to stop and pause and recognize and notice. And the one lesson for today is this. Paul says, in order to do any of this, you must first be filled with the Spirit. Do you see that? Do you recognize that being filled with the Spirit is primary, that it comes first, and all these other things are downstream from being filled with the Spirit? So what is the power we need to have Christ-centered communities? We must first be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that results in our addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and singing to the Lord and giving thanks in all circumstances, and in submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, let's push on a little deeper, right? Let's push on a little deeper. Paul is saying... That in order to have Christ-centered community, you must be filled with the Spirit and Christ-centered, right? That we're looking at Him, that we're focused on Him, and that's what empowers and enables us to give up uh, our own rights, to give up things that we're looking at Him, that I have reverence for Him, I'm going to submit to one another. And what that means is that we must have the ability to take ourself out of the center of everything 
and to put the needs of other people above our own interests and above our own desires. So that leads us to our corollary, all right? Uh, so we got to be filled with the Spirit. The lessons we're going to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then the corollary is this. Self-centeredness is the main reason we don't have Christ-centered community. Self-centeredness is the reason we don't have Christ-centered community. We're too full of ourselves. We're too full of what we want. And we want what we want when we want it. And we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. So if we're struggling with Christ-centered community, then we need to ask, number one, are we filled with the Spirit? Are we seeking to be filled by the Spirit over and over again? And second, am I submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, or am I fighting for my own way, trying to build my own kingdom, we prayed in the prayers of confession? And of course, the ability to submit to one another is impossible without the Holy Spirit, so Paul's assumption is that to have Christ-centered community, we must be filled with the Spirit. We must be Christ-centered. So the power comes from the Holy Spirit. The new lesson, we're going to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The corollary, self-centeredness is the main reason we don't have Christ-centered community. For, so for any problem that you're having seeing the gospel play out in your relationships, look for self-centeredness at the root, right? A good rule of thumb in Christ-centered community is to serve the needs of other people before your own needs. That's a good description of Christ-centered Christ community. Um, that is a, a good way to diagnose what's going on and to think about what's happening in the system. Now, before I stop, I want to deal with one objection. Because I think in the culture we live in, we celebrate our individual rights. We celebrate our individual choices and want to have those. And one of the reasons that we don't submit to the leading of the Spirit, one of the reasons we don't submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is fear, which I think came to the world as a result of the fall. There's this fear that exists that if we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that we will be neglected or abused. That if I'm not standing up for my rights, for what I want, then who's going to stand up for me? And so I feel like I've got to assert myself, assert my rights, assert my privileges in order to not be mistreated. So let's talk about that objection for a minute. Let's just name that that is our heart. And, and let's talk about that. First of all, Notice that the design in Christ-centered communities is that, yes, you are submitting to other people and putting their needs and interests above your own. But the design of the community is that those other people would also be putting your rights and desires above their own. Right? That's the design of the community. That yes, you may not be putting your rights, your desires, your interests first, but there are other people who are giving up what they want for your good. So they're supposed to be doing so as well. Now, does that mean that we're never neglected or it never results in abuse if we operate this way? No, it doesn't mean that at all, right? But I want you to hear this very clearly because I think sometimes this passage is taught in a way that says you're just supposed to submit yourself to neglect or abuse. And so I want you to hear this very clearly. In order to submit, 
You give up your rights for the good of another. But the idea is not to submit to neglect or abuse. Think about that. If you're supposed to, if submission means giving up your rights for the good of another, then ask yourself, is it good for the other person to allow them to neglect or abuse other people in Christ-centered community? Is that for their good, to allow them to continue to do that? No, not at all. Now, we don't respond with shame, right? We don't respond in a heavy-handed way, but with love and kindness and grace, we confront the one who neglects or abuses. We confront them, right? We've talked about, again, Sermon 2, brush your teeth illustration. You can confront, you can correct, you can even give consequences in a manner that's consistent with love and kindness and grace. It's just a matter of how you do those things. But I want you to hear very clearly that to submit to one another does not mean that we never confront one another. Think about that with me. If you never confront anyone... What that probably means is that you put your perceived need for peace or for harmony or for not wanting to rock the boat or for not having a hard conversation, you put that need that you have over that other person's need to hear the truth and the healing and the proper perspective that can come from healing from hearing the truth. So in some instances... The failure to confront someone can be putting your perceived needs above theirs. And when that happens, the failure to confront is actually not submitting to one another for their good. Now, it works the other way as well. Some people are really quick to confront. All right, well, let's just confront. Out of love, I'm going to give you the truth. Well, we speak the truth in love, Ephesians says other places, that we speak that, that, that Jesus was full of grace and truth, so we do so in a gracious way. So if you are quick to confront, you really like that confrontation, then you need to be on to yourself and think about, it could be that you are putting your perceived need to be right, or to have everything go right, or, to, or, or your perceived need for everyone to know that you are right, You could be putting those things over other people's need for kindness and love and grace, which is what leads them to repentance and more godly living. So our new lesson is this. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, which means we serve the needs of the other over our own needs. Now think about the implications of that. We are teasing out. How do we live out the gospel in our relationships? What does that look like? We're teasing that out now. So think about that with me. What that means is that in Christ-centered community, in our relationships with one another, we are not to be totally passive, nor are we called to be totally active. What it means is that we choose passivity or activity based on what is best for the other person. Think about that. We often handle things in a way that makes us feel better right? Not what's best for the other person. Sometimes, you know, your spouse has just been going too far, and so you just really let them have it, right? And you know that you probably shouldn't, but man, it makes you feel better to know that you did that. 
We do it in parenting too, right? Maybe it's easier to see in other people. Sometimes when people correct children, it's not for the good of the children so that they learn the right thing to do. It's just out of that person's anger. And they just feel better to give some kind of punishment or to shame, right? It just makes them feel better. So many times... We handle things in a way that make us feel better, not by what is best for the other person. So this is going to take some work, because it's wrong to do things based on what makes me feel better, that my focus is supposed to be what is best for the other person, what is best for the group. And I may be uncomfortable confronting. I may be uncomfortable being passive. But we choose activity or passivity based on what is best for other people and what is best for the group. Last question, so what if I do all I'm supposed to do and they still don't do what's right? They still don't put the group over themselves. They're still not doing what they are. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. What do we do then? Well, I ask you again, what's your job? To depend on God, to point other people to depend on God, to serve them and loving, love them well by calling them to depend on God? by using the tools of love and kindness and grace to confront, to give consequences, to challenge thinking in a loving and gracious and kind way, and then to wait on the Lord to change them. And that's what God uses to change people's hearts, is love and kindness and grace and dependence on him. That's hard. But while we wait on the Lord to work in his process and in his time, being Christ-centered and Holy Spirit-filled means that we realize that in Christ, my needs will be met. That in Christ, my greatest needs are being met. So that I don't have to have right behavior from my spouse or from my kids or from our officers or from my pastor in order to fill me, in order to validate me. If we are Holy Spirit filled and Christ centered, then we can say, I'm going to work on my selfishness whether or not they work on their selfishness or not. That's hard. That's really hard. But that's what life in Christ-centered community looks like. And if your reaction is, man, I can't do that, then guess what? You're hearing what the text says. Paul says, that's right, you can't do that. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, how am I filled with the Spirit? How do we do that? Well, we pray and ask God to send the Spirit. We spend time in the Word because the Spirit loves to use the Word in order to quicken our hearts. We come to the Lord's table and the, the Spirit loves to use the sacraments to strengthen us. We spend time in worship, both public worship and in private worship, and the Spirit loves to use that in order to strengthen us and to work in our hearts. 
we put our mind on the things that are above and put to death the things of the flesh. Paul in Ephesians 4 and verse 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And what is it that grieves him? Well, right around that he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that you may give grace according to what other people need. That we forgive one another. We're kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ Jesus forgave us. Maybe you're here and you feel convicted. You've been doing the wrong job. You've been using the wrong tools. At best, you've been inconsistent. You don't defer to the needs of others. You haven't submitted to others for their good. You don't put their needs above your own. You've been selfish. I do have good news for you this morning. Number one, the blood of Jesus covers that sin. And Christ-centered community is made up of people whose sins have been covered by Jesus. We all admit that we're sinners. We all know we're totally dependent on his grace. So we're quicker to extend grace and mercy to one another because of the grace and mercy we've received. I have more good news. If you are convicted, that means that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. It's the Spirit who convicts you of sin. And if you see that you've been doing this the wrong way, then that is good. That means that the Spirit is at work in you. And He loves to come close to the brokenhearted, those who are broken over their sin. He loves to come close to the humble. He loves to come close to the contrite. And when the Holy Spirit shows us our sin, He does not then go on to say, well, you need to get that cleaned up. Good luck with that. You need to work on that and come back next Sunday. We'll check in again. No. The Holy Spirit says, here is your sin, but I am here to help you. Hear the good news of the gospel. You are not alone. Tomorrow does not have to be like yesterday because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit has revealed to you, what the Holy Spirit has convicted you of, what the Holy Spirit has made you aware of, the Holy Spirit also gives you means to fight. And as 1 John 4 and verse 4 reminds us, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that results in our submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the Holy Spirit gives us power and strength to extend kindness and love and grace to those who are not putting our needs above theirs. Even as we depend on God to change them, we serve them by pointing them to depend on God. This is hard. We cannot do it. But that's exactly the point. We must be filled with the Spirit. Let's pray and ask Him to come and to help us. Oh, Father, we cannot do these things. I pray that you would help us to come to the end of ourselves, that we would see we are not capable of doing these things. And as we come to the end of ourselves, I pray that our hope would be in you, that we would look to you, that we would know we cannot do Christ-centered community and have the gospel lived out in our relationships unless you come and unless you work. So we ask now, 
that you would come and that you would do the work that only you can do. That you would create Christ-centered community in this place, in our family, in our church family, wherever you put us. I pray that we would be people filled by the Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. You are welcome in this place. We pray that you would be at work in your people. And we ask that you would do so for your own glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.